Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Book Shambles. This week, Robin is joined in studio again by guest co-host Beck Hill and by friend of Cosmic Shambles and a regular at uh, at the Book Shambles studio and in some of our live shows as well, Philippa Perry, author of the Sunday Times number one bestseller, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read. Thanks, as always, to all our Patreon supporters. Extended versions of all the episodes are available for you exclusively. You can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to pledge your support to the show and everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network, which includes lots of upcoming live shows. We are going to be at Space Week at the Old Town Hall in Hemel Hempstead, May 3rd and 4th. On the 3rd, we will be presenting Signals, which is the new comedy play about uh, astronomy and searching for meaning in the universe that we are co-presenting with Footprint Theatre and that will be followed by a talk by Dallas Campbell about space and UFOs and all sorts of exciting things there and then on the 4th we will be doing a Universe of Music show with Professor Chris Lintott and Steve Pretty. Uh, Some of you may have seen that at King's Place, the work in progress shows we've just done in London. So come on up to Hemel Hempstead or down to Hemel Hempstead or just across the road if you live in Hemel Hempstead uh, and catch us there. It's the first time they've done Space Week at the Old Town Hall, so it would be great to see you there. Also, lots of festival shows have been announced in the past week. We're going to be with Signals and Universe of Music at the Cheltenham Science Festival in June. We're also going to be at Blue Dot Festival with a few shows and we're going to be back at Latitude. As always, we're doing lots and lots of shows there. Two that I can mention now uh, is we are doing Signals there as well, also with a panel after that called Signals from Space, which is going to be chaired by Robin with an all-star guest lineup. And we are bringing back Space Shambles. A mini revival of Space Shambles will be taking place at Latitude and as you know you can't do Space Shambles without an astronaut so we are delighted that we will be joined by Helen Sharman the first ever British person in space the first ever British astronaut she's going to be speaking at that event she's going to be in conversation with Robin and some other special guests so if you are coming to Latitude make sure you come and see that show if you're not coming to Latitude there are still tickets available You'll find all of that on the Cosmic Shambles webpage. And also, don't forget to check out everything on the Cosmic Shambles website. There's a new video and blog up by Robin at the moment. If you're wondering or you've noticed that Robin isn't on Twitter anymore, uh, that blog and video will explain that. Now, on to this week's episode. Here is Robin and Beck and Philippa. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. I hope you're enjoying whatever you're doing. You've decided that this will be your distraction as you do that. Uh, Just a quick couple of things, which is uh, that we have a few events going on. The Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People is 
going on in London and Manchester this year, and the tickets have just gone on sale. And also lots of blog posts and many other things. And if you want to support us financially, we would like it. Or you can send presents, but ultimately we need your money so we can pay the science <laughs> blog people because The Guardian decided to stop doing that. Anyway, welcome to the show. Josie's not here. Uh, we are joined instead by a uh, comedian, uh, pop-up book artist, uh, puppeteer, uh, Beck Hill. Hello. <laughs> and uh, number one today... Number as we record this, uh, she's been uh, the number one Sunday Times bestseller list now for two weeks. And by the time you listen to this, it might be three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. Or it might be R.I.P. No, I think it's still (laughs) going to be there because I put a picture of me reading this book on Instagram. And I would say that is a very potent marketing tool. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I oh, so I you're the reason it's number yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That going on behind Yeah, there's a me. whole yeah. other thing going on. Fantastic. We are working very hard mm. as about... influencers. Yeah, I was going to use that <laughs> word. <laughs> Damn, you got there first, you young influencers. <laughs> So, Philippa Perry, I mean, the, your new book, we, we, we talked a little bit about it when we uh, did, a, a, at the beginning of this year, we, we did another book, Shambles, with uh, Rebecca Payton. Uh, the book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did. Um, it is, uh, I described it, I, I said to someone, it's basically, it's kind of, it, it, it's pragmatic and it's kind. And it is a, it seems to be a useful, I mean, that's the first thing that I thought, having done a few interviews with you in the past and 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 talked to you in various different situations that the your ability to be able to pare down the problems that occur when you now have a child in your life and to try and call for those moments of 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 pausing and and reflection it it's done very well it's done very well all i've done is that in order to have a decent relationship with your client if you're a psychotherapist there's some things you need to do Uh, you need to allow mutual impact to happen you need to allow for what Martin Buber used to call moments of inclusion which is when for a second you're both on the same page and you both resonate and feel that that lovely feeling of being got and getting the other person And all these things make for a good relationship to allow dialogue. So there's turn-taking. So often um, in parental-child relationships, there's the parent who is the doer and the child who is the done-to. And if you're anything like me, and most people are in this respect, we don't like being done-to. We want to have more of an equal give and take in any relationship. So I've just taken all that knowledge, which is basic counselling, and applied it to parenting. Well, you start off by, uh, I hope it's ch- chapter one, but certainly in the early part of the book, talking about those moments when you realise that even though conscious you would not wish to react as your parents had reacted to you, that suddenly you do find yourself replaying the relationship, but now, of course, the, the power structure has changed. Yeah. And, and that seems to be something which obviously has come up a great deal in the people that you've sat with, that you've done therapy yeah. with. Yes, uh, I opened my, my mouth and my mother's words came out is, is a thing that happens a lot, which is great if there were words that made us feel safe and warm and loved and appreciated, but so often they are words that did the opposite. And I'm really interested as to why this is. 
why do we suddenly revert to what we don't want to be? It's because it's a much, much deeper, older layer that when you're under stress, you revert back to what you always were rather than what you're trying to be. And what I'm trying to do in my book is to make parents aware when they think they're responding to their child in the present, but actually they're responding in the way their parents would have responded to them in the past. So they're responding to the past and not the present, which is quite discombobulating for the child, as mm. you can imagine. Mm. That's because I, I find it, with, with, with my son, one of the difficulties are sometimes, well, not a difficulty such, actually, it's quite an adventure, but he so much seems to have my brain that I know some of the skullduggery that he's up to. You know, the other day as he comes up the stairs... And I go, oh, you've got something. That... No, I haven't got anything. And I can clearly see that just like me when I was 11, he has snuck a chocolate bar under his top. It is making <laughs> a more rustly sound than he do. And I, and I, and I said to him in a, in a joke, I, I said, I'll always get you much because same brain, same brain. You know, that, that moment where the bit where, and it wasn't, it wasn't a telling off thing or anything like yeah. that, but there's those moments where I sometimes think, right, I need to stop just presuming that, you know, if something's broken, I know that when I broke things, and I still do this, um, I know I can make this better, actually. I can, if I put the screwdriver in here, and I, oh, God, the whole front's come off now. And, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, how did that happen? I have no idea. I certainly didn't stick a screwdriver in it. And, <laughs> and so the other day when I was repairing something that, it, that had broken mysteriously, I knew that I had to stop at some point, because just maybe, maybe he is telling the truth, and I just have to accept that truth. Yeah, I've... I as a parent, fell down the same thing because I was, I was a, a great liar as a child. I had mm. to lie as a child, otherwise I got into trouble. Mm-hmm. So lying was a very sensible um, mechanism for getting out of trouble. So I lied a lot. And I assumed that my daughter would lie because I did. And I was wrong. And mm. I had to backtrack and backpedal. Uh, because my assumptions were wrong. Like, for instance, once when she was about uh, six years old and she walked home in the countryside on her own and she told me, I've been knocked over by a cow. Now, I've never been knocked over by a cow, so I did not believe her. I said, yes, you're probably scared about being on your own. Yes, that must have felt scary. And you. And she said, will you stop patronising me? I was knocked over by a cow. <laughs> I thought, no, not our placid cows, don't be daft. Anyway, about a few weeks later, I was pass- passing through the field of cows who were um, all behaving themselves beautifully. And I stooped down because my shoelace had come undone. So I became half the size of a cow because I was bending over to do my shoelace. And a cow came up to me and gently nudged me over. And I think, oh, if you're shorter than a cow, the cowardly beasts think they can knock you over. And they do. And then I realised that she was telling the truth. So I, mm. said, I, I went to her and I went, I'm so sorry you were telling the truth. And she said, yes, I was. And... Um, that's something I talk about in my book a lot. You know, let go of being right. You know, mm. um, if if you mess up with your kid, repair it. Say sorry. Say, oh gosh, you were right after all. Because we don't have a monopoly on being right just because we're adult. Well, it also feels like when your parents do that, it teaches you that you can do that. There's Perfect. no shame. Very good point. Yeah. Um, and that's what happened as well to me is because I 
said my bad quite a lot to my daughter. Mm. She once said to me when she was about three, she said, sorry I was grumpy in the car. I was hungry. I'm all right now. I just thought, that's amazing. I haven't said, now say you're sorry. She was yeah. just naturally, without any humiliation, thinking, oh, yeah, that was a bit out of order. She had learnt at a very early age to reflect on her behaviour and go, yeah, that wasn't quite right. And I just thought, amazing. I, who knew that, that kids do what we do rather yeah. than what we say? But it's true. Well, that's, I mean, that you, you talk about this quite a lot in the book, and it's something one of our first conversations was about that moment of confusion, and sometimes it can be very much longer than a moment, where we somehow think that a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a three-year-old brain, ten-year-old brain, whatever, is an adult brain and should be able to perceive the world and perceive our needs in the same way. You know, so you, you tell a story of a, a woman who's late on a train and she goes yeah. to pick up her daughter from kindergarten, she's half an hour late and then she can't understand why the daughter's in a strop. And then that ability, trying to go, that the moment of pause that allows us to go, okay, these are my needs and this is the way that I'm viewing the world. Yeah. But what has my three-year-old or my four-year-old, what have they just experienced? Yeah. And especially with time as well. Half an hour to us is, boom, gone. Yeah. But half an hour, extra at kindergarten, all of those yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. It's And also, um, when you're in a hurry and you want your kid to get your sense of urgency, they might not because... Uh, we find it hard enough to change gears and go from one activity to another. You know, we find it hard to go to bed. We find it hard to get up. While a child, if they're playing a game, don't want to suddenly get ripped away from that game and stop. They need time to change gears, just like we do for getting out of bed, you know. Mm. And if they aren't given that time they can get overstimulated you know stop doing that put on your coat put on your shoes it's all too much at once so the only way they can stop it is just by screaming no 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 and then you think well what a naughty child rather than seeing it from the child's point of view of complete overwhelm and wanting to stop the feeling of overwhelm we so often live in the future as parents because somebody's got to keep an eye on the future and what's going to happen so it's not a bad thing but it's even more important to spend time in the present because that's where our children are and that's where we can meet them and have these moments of meeting that are so important for a feeling of feeling connected to our parents that's a really mm. I, I find that bit of understanding beginning to understand that now is now is now and the future is this is rubbish I don't want to go there and I don't want to go and see that film that I said because that's the future and I'm in now and that bit yeah. is a hard thing to 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 grasp but I mean what's your and obviously you write about this in the book so when I say what's your advice the advice ultimately is £12.99 and currently at the top of the bestsellers list but thank you for some of the free <laughs> uh, uh, advice some, you know that bit that will just hook these people in um that finding that ability to pause, because that seems to me the hardest thing, which is so much of when you do see those, when we, when we can be bad parents, is often attached to, for instance, a fear of, of, of shame, of letting other people down, of being late for something, yeah. of, oh, my God, what are people thinking of my child? All of that yeah. comes attached to it. I think some, How do we stop? How I think sometimes it's a really good idea not to take... Um, the the child's words too literally but to always look at the feelings underneath the words see i'm listening to this because I, I don't have kids but i'm listening to this all within uh 
I feel like I'm constantly struggling with my inner child. And so I'm listening to this and going, how can I apply this to my inner child? Because so often I find myself getting frustrated when I'm supposed to be doing stuff. And that thing about living in the moment... I'm late to a lot of things because I leave it till the last moment it's to leave hard the to house change and gears. then I feel overwhelmed. Yeah. Whereas I think I was like, oh, maybe that's maybe what I need to do then is if I know I have to leave the house in half an hour, then start getting ready to leave the house half an hour early and just take my time to change gears yeah, so give that yourself... I don't get that anxiety as I leave the house going, I've forgotten something, I've left something on, yeah. I've done something Give yourself wrong. a five-minute warning. Yeah. Give yeah. yourself a three-minute warning. <laughs> just this like you give a toddler when you've got to change activities. Yeah. yeah. I think we all have an inner child within us. And sometimes our inner child can get competitive or even jealous of our real child. So, for instance, um, if your four-year-old or 16-year-old or whatever gets masses of presents on his birthday and seems quite nonchalant about it, you might your inner 16-year-old or four-year-old might get suddenly very jealous of them and tell them off. It's not as though... They, you know, you've, you're the one that's given them the presents mm. and then you tell them off for having all those presents. I mean, that happens quite a lot. And it's nonsensical when I actually put it into words like that. But we do get jealous of our children because they appear to be having a nicer time than we did when we were <laughs> children. Um, so I say don't do the equivalent of trolling on our kids. Don't do parental mm. trolling out of our jealousy. Watch our jealousy. Well, I'd, I mean, I... I would imagine there will be some people who might... They probably won't buy this book. They'll flick through it and they may well go, oh, well, you see, this one, it's it's allowing the child to have the upper hand. It's allowing the... And, and because I thought that quite a lot when... I, I didn't think... I mean, I was thinking of the critics of it, not the actual critics who've enjoyed it, but the, <laughs> that bit where... Um, I'm always fascinated with people who say, well, in the old days it was much better and everyone didn't share their emotions all the time. Mm. And you go, haven't you seen how damaged all those generations are? It's like when people talk Mm. about the perfect family and you go, don't you know lots of people where they were brought up by a husband and wife and still it was hell? But this, you know, so this... I imagine there's still a battle where, you know, you mentioned briefly just, you know, when when a guy walks past you when you you and your daughter Flo are sat looking at some ants when you really wanted to be home but you thought, I'm just going to sit down and look at it and he went, you know, is she winning? Yeah. Um, and then there's a couple of other examples where people do seem to fear, certainly I, I see it in this country, a fear of the child that is not scolded enough. What mm. kind of monster will yeah. we create if we're yeah, not we're perpetually very, scolding? We're very um, good at being frightened that if we are nice and kind and considerate towards our children that they'll grow up into monsters. But in fact, if we're nice and kind and considerate towards our children, they learn to ape nice, kind, considerate behaviour. And they're not over-adapted, so they're less likely to have mental health difficulties later on. Yeah. You said something uh, earlier on, which was about um, how we often address the past instead of the present. Yeah. um, In terms of uh, the the messages that we tell kids. And... um, one thing I sort of noticed, uh, I'm a feminist, but I found myself still saying things to, to friends with toddlers, um, especially if they're little girls, going, 
she's gonna be a little heartbreaker when she's old, isn't she? Or like, oh, she's gonna be a stunner when she, you know, like, and, mm. and I find myself saying these things because they're things that I heard people say when yeah. I was not about me, but yeah, you know, I'd, I'd hear them, I'd, I'd see other people saying them, and I'd hear that in conversation, yeah. family conversations, yeah, you know, where they're talking about, you know, cousins and, and brothers and sisters and that kind of thing, yeah, and and I, in the back of my head, that is not even though, as soon as as wasn't until someone had pointed out to me how weird it is that we say that. I mean, there was a wonderful tweet, um, and I cannot remember who said it, but it was something along the lines of talking about the people who say, um, uh, oh, we can't expose children to the idea of LGBTQI stuff, yeah. despite the fact that, you know, statistically, a lot of them will grow up. Yeah. Is, is this from the the recent No Outsiders thing in Birmingham? Yes, yeah. yeah. And they said, and they said, um, the, the people who say that, oh, they're not old enough to deal with these issues. They're not. We shouldn't be putting this on the on the young minds. Are the same people who will say to a five year old, oh, so do you have a boyfriend? Yeah. 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 Oh, you got a boyfriend at school, don't you? Ugh. I mean, I've got yeah. a niece who's like seven, and we we you know my uh pa- my parents in law will say. Oh, oh! You're going to see Jack this week. She's seven. She's seven yeah. years old. Like, um, it's this is very interesting. Um, there was an experiment done, and um, if the uh, expectant mother knew the gender, the sex of her child, um, it altered her relationship with that fetus. So, for instance, uh, if she was told she was having a girl, she'd go, oh, it's lovely, soft, rolling movements she does. If she was told she was having a boy, she'd say, kicking like mad, going to be a right little footballer. And so right from the very beginning, we start projecting society's expectations onto our fetus about things like gender. Now, if the mothers weren't told the sex of their child they didn't do any of this um gendered sort of language and um there's a fantastic uh, neuroimaging scientist called Gina Rippon who has just written a book called I always do this the gendered brain thank you and you can hear about it on we we did a uh, a podcast with her so if you want oh, to know smashing. more about it. yeah she's, she's oh, great absolutely smashing so Gina Rippon points out that some of the experiments done on like two-year-olds look he's going for the truck how can we say that um boys and girls brains aren't uh, aren't different when he's two he's been enculturated since he was before he was born about people's expectations of how he should behave you cannot those those experiments are not valid because he is not exactly coming from an egg age two and shown a dolly and a and a truck. He's been encouraged to play with trucks since he was born. Yeah, well, one story I remember is my um, my mum telling me that when my brother was uh, about three or four, we went to the beach, and I was wearing sort of a little two-piece, you know, swimming costume. I wouldn't yeah. be about seven or something. Yeah. And uh, flowers on it, that sort of thing that little girls wear. And my brother was just in little speedos. Yeah. And and he wanted to know why I got to wear the pretty bathing suit. Yeah. Your poor bro. Yeah, why not? And he he asked my mum. My mum said it was the first time I realised, she realised that that was such a big issue because he said, why can't I wear that? And she said, and I didn't have an answer. Yeah. I'd never even, 
I'd never even considered yeah. that it was different and that it's, yeah. and that it's weird how that... And and she said, I didn't know how to answer him. And parents get very worried if their little boys go, oh, I quite fancy a tutu today. And they just don't know how to deal with that. You know, what does this mean? Yeah. Is, he, is, it, is he going to go on and partake in drag race or what? <laughs> you know? Well, I think a lot of them, fortunately, um, as, as, as we go on, I think a lot of the parents, it becomes less about what, what does this mean in terms of uh, how they're, they're personally going to turn out, but more what does this mean of how society is going to turn Yes. Because yeah. I don't think my parents had an issue. I mean, I used to, we used to play dress-ups when we were yeah. kids, and I used to always dress my brother up as... He'd always play a grandma when we yeah. do sketch, because we watch Monty Python, and boys yeah. dress as girls, and that's yeah. funny. Yeah. It's what you're taught. Um, but, you know, there was no issue with that. There was no issue with us cross-dressing for stuff. Um, their problem was, if and we went out in public like that, yeah. how's he going to be treated by the people around yeah. the children around? I mean, I remember worrying about that myself when my daughter insisted, aged... Um, three of Kirby gripping a pret-a-manger napkin to her head and saying, I'm going to nursery in this. And I said, what is it, dear? And she said, it's a Dutch cap. I thought, this is so wrong on so many levels. You do worry about how other people are going to say, of course, they took it fine. And I just thought, if she wants to do that, who am I to stop her? And she did. She has grown out of it, actually. She doesn't wear a Pret-a-Manger on her head hardly at all these days. She's a proper cotton one now. Yeah, not disposable. In my head, I was like, I'm going to go try that. Yeah. <laughs> that, that bit of... I remember I used to talk about this in stand-up where when my son was about two and a half and another uh, friend of his came round and he fell over and bumped his head. And uh, he rubbing his head and he, he went over to his friend and he went, oh, I've bumped my head, would you kiss it better? And and the mother leapt across the room and was like, oh, I don't think we want that kind of thing starting Oh, yet. my and God. And that idea of that kind of thing. And I used to say, you know, the idea of, you know, how many friends do we have? Who you go, you know, w w when did you realise your sexuality? I fell over, I bumped my head, one thing led to another. <laughs> and I used to talk about that, I, you know, actually saying, you know, don't always know where he's in playgroup, but I don't think he's cottaging yet. You know, this yeah. kind of... Oh. And it, but it's such a fascinating thing where... And as you said, that line where sometimes you start to, to worry about their possible embarrassment. I mean, yeah. it's a horrible thing to see in a certain way, even though it's necessary. That first time that you see in a child that they are conscious of other people's judgment. You know, they, they, yeah. they're putting on a top with a dinosaur on it or whatever. And someone said something about it. And they're still quite little at this point, but they go, oh, no, no, I will wear that today. And you go, already... That's the starting point. Yeah. And, and where do we... Yeah. The, the freedom to express yourself. Yeah. The, sometimes the fear of protecting them against derision. Yeah. It's very... And it's so difficult to know what is our fear and what is real. And um, it's so difficult to know how much of our fear and our inner critical voice they actually pick up on. And they seem to pick up quite a lot. Um, after being um, a psychotherapist for a few decades... What I noticed was is that the critical everybody's inner critical voice seemed to be a direct descendant of one of their parents' inner critical voices. This stuff gets passed on by osmosis. So if a parent has a poor view of themselves, the child picks up this poor view of themselves. And this is also very enculturated, sort of like what will other people think? Goes goes very deep. And I think it's important to think about what other people think. That's why I don't barge to the front of the queue in the cafe, because I don't want everybody to hate me. Um, 
you know, so I wait my turn. I'm just thinking about times I've actually done that. I'm sorry, but, you know, Disguising your own, <laughs> own child as a serviette to try and get there. Yeah, brilliant. Um, you know, we, do, we don't behave badly like that. We don't cue barge because we don't want other people to disapprove of us. Um, otherwise, we would, probably. I don't know. Um, or maybe we're just really empathetic. That's why we don't do it. So the, there's a, the, the, it's not like I never want anyone to ever care about what they think of me. I care deeply about what other people think of me. But I don't want to care about what they think of my headgear or my shoes or my, or my gender assignment, you know. Yeah. You don't want other people to think of you as not caring about them. Yes. I do, yeah, exactly that. I want, and I do want to care about other people in yeah. terms of their comfort. But I, I wish we wouldn't care about other people in terms of what they think we look like. It's, yeah. it's such a fine line. It's difficult yeah. to get that one right, I think. Because mm. it also makes me wince when I hear, I don't care what other people think. I think, oh, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That was it, the, the Milgram experiment, the... Uh, yeah. Um, which I know there's a lot of kind of questions around it. You know, you know the experiment where they, it, it was uh, basically uh, it was to find out about the kind of banality of evil that Hannah Arendt had, had written about Eichmann on trial and stuff like that. Which is um, the the experiment looked like you were going in and someone behind a wall was being given questions and every time they got a question an answer wrong, uh, you would have to give them an electric shock and it would go up and up and up and up uh, each time they got one wrong and they wanted to find out how far people would go. You're not actually having an electric shock. The other person in on the experiment, though you don't realise it, is... Uh, an actor. It, yeah, is an actor in it. And what's interesting is when you read about some of the people who were... Who stood... You know, no, I'm not going to go further. Uh, I'm going to stop there. He would go, they're a good person. Then you'd read, actually, and go, oh, no, they were also an arsehole as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're, they're not caring what other people thought. Sometimes also meant that some of the other yeah. people who were malleable and seemed to go very, very high and, and as if they were giving this person a heart condition, making the person sick and sick, yeah. they actually... It was because the person giving the instructions was wearing a white coat, so they had a sort of mm. air of authority about them. They go, no, carry on, carry on administering the shots, it's important for the science, carry on, we need to find this out. And they really didn't know that this guy was an actor because they'd come into the room together and go, okay, you be that, per you be behind the screen, you be on the machine, you be behind the screen, you be answering the question, you know. So they just thought they were separated up at random. Yeah. Although part of me would be like, when does this swap over? You know, yeah, you, well, that's you know that that's the interesting. Yeah. I mean, when you see the footage, I mean, like there's this big guy, and he's really questioning it. The the, the book's called Obedience to Authority by yeah. Stanley Milgram, and it's uh, um, and he and he goes, but the guy is he goes, come on, you got to stop now. I told you I have a heart condition. He goes, I, I can't go on. I mean, he's got to continue the experiment. <sighs> and then some people just start laughing because the nervousness and it. Yeah. But it's, it's a fascinating. I guess, yeah. Sorry, I, I, I'm probably going off on too much of a tangent. No, but just I'm really interested in this obeying orders thing because I think if we um, bring up our kids just to be you must be obedient you must never question authority what dreadful things will they be capable of because they have delegated their conscience to a higher authority it's 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 not cool, I don't think. I find it interesting. I don't know if you see it, but 
quite a few of my friends who have kids who are in some kind of arts background or whatever, their children from quite an early age are socialised in lots of different situations and not spoken down to that much. You know, there's not yeah. that kind of you're a child and they'll be backstage at festivals and they'll meet all manner of people who've done yeah. strange things. And when they go to school, it can be quite problematic because they don't immediately go, oh, adult, yes, will do. It's yeah. not that they're naughty. Yeah, it's that they feel that the relationship perhaps has a little bit more give than a lot of school systems think it does. Yeah, and I always find that interesting. With when you see some of the kids, so you see some of the very obedient children come out of school, and you see them meet their dad or their mum and go, "I want an ice cream now," yeah. and all of that obedience, yeah, that was for the school. And then I see some of the quirky kids, some of the kids who sometimes, and there's a slightly more even playing field in terms of. They don't have school self yeah. and outside self as much. Yeah. And there seems to be a kind of, I don't want to use the word authentic, but do you know what I mean yeah. by that? There's a kind of, I don't know if you, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, the, I do. I mean, um, some children are trained to be adaptive, so adapt to the environment, maybe at the expense of themselves. And other children are encouraged to be authentic. And if they get an, enough attention, they're not a pain in the arse about it. it. The only children that are really a pain in the arse are the ones that have to manipulate you to get attention because there's no other way of getting attention. That they, that's how they've been trained by their parents to be annoying by, because they haven't been given enough atten attention. And... Uh, yeah, and I think if we start splitting selves into my school self, my home self, I think we are causing trouble for ourselves because they might think this part of me is nice, this part of me isn't nice, therefore a part of me isn't good. It's not cool. I think school is problematic altogether. Mm. I don't think it's, it's sort of done as though we're still... Um, been dictated to by those nineteenth um, century, early twentieth century know-alls who thought you should leave children outside in the rain well, to toughen them up. Treating us as little factory workers, isn't it? E training us to wake up at a certain time, do things at a certain time, go home. Yeah, for instance, teenagers actually need an awful lot of sleep, and they need that sleep in the morning. So making a teenager get up before ten o'clock is really not good for their brain development mm -hmm. at all. Because they're they're actually wiring up their frontal cortex in their in their teens and late teens, which makes them sensible. If we keep interrupting that by making them get up early, don't be surprised if they act delinquent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you brought some books, and we haven't got and and I can't let you. Uh, I don't, no, I'd like to see what they are as well. So the uh, yeah. because we've. Um, uh, I mean, I don't. It certainly doesn't fit in with this. It doesn't uh, matter. We can. We're allowed. Don't to Don't worry. Uh, I have learned how to get the get the subject back to my book in under like twenty right. seconds right, for let's anything. See. So each one of these. Now let's see I how long it takes. Either of them. Right. Right. Uh, Tell us about that one. This one. Yeah. Uh, so this is one I just picked up uh, on a whim. It's called. Sorry, I did a lot of banging there. I've done a classic. That's okay. No, that was thing. proper BBC sound effects. I'm getting some books out. Yeah. Well, I'm a folly artist in my spare time. Um, uh, it's called Do You Dream of Terror 2? Who, 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 who is Terror 2? Uh, so Terror 2 is the name of a second Earth. Uh, oh, of course. Terror 2. Got yeah, you. It's a young adult fiction novel. I didn't know that. I just sort of picked it up because I'm quite interested in space travel. And uh, I've, I've been reading and listening to a lot of audiobooks as well about 
factual space travel stuff and, yeah. and you know, the logistics of it. And, and now I was like, oh, let's do something fantastic. And this one is, uh, it's sort of set almost like in a parallel timeline where there's a British space agency and, and it's sort of uh, the early 2000s, but, but sort of long distance space travel is, is uh, achievable. And, uh, and it's about the first crew to go to this second Earth that they found in, in uh, a nearby sort of system and yeah i'm only halfway through it at the moment but it's it's um i mean it's very much young adult mm. you know there's a few things where i think do you think do you think young adults would like a second universe to escape to because the one they're in isn't that great yeah well i think there's a lot of dealing with that as well which is really interesting and it's funny how we're talking about um parenting and stuff because there's uh there's a couple of so each character sort of gets their own chapter and it sort of switches between characters and their backgrounds and um obviously a few of them it gives you a little insight into their background as to why they decided to go and train in this big academy and then get chosen to go on this one-way trip leaving behind their, their friends and family and everyone um but then there's a few of them where they never talk about their parents and so you just go i mean surely that was a difficult discussion wasn't it with not only am i leaving home and i'm you know, 18 or whatever it is, but I'm, I'm going away forever and, and you'll never see me again, likely. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so as an adult, I'm reading it and I find a few loopholes where I think, yeah. oh, I'm not, not quite sure you've answered all my questions. But yeah. do you think that's because it's young adult or do you think it's because you're aware it's young adult and they're, because I, I think the, the young adult thing, it's been, it's been a great battle for like 30 years, 40 years in publishing, that bit of going, how do we market things to teenagers at the same time, not, you know, that whole thing yeah, where yeah, yeah. Just 17 magazine was never read by 17 year olds, 19 magazine was read by 15 year olds. Yeah. And I remember there used to be a thing called Teen Tracks, I think, which Lion Books brought out, which was how they used to do S.E. Hinton and there were all these different ways. And I actually find there's, there's a few books that I've read which are technically considered to be young adult yeah. teen fiction and they're great and they want you know and there's not so I wonder whether well it's probably also just because I've been reading up so much about space travel that I so like they've got a fake gravity and immediately I'm like no <laughs> <laughs> no that, that doesn't exist and it, it, it it's it's a novel it's a novel you can make anything exactly. up exactly yeah so I think perhaps it's not necessarily the young adult thing it's just I've had my brain in science books for too long and I've got to remember what it's like to have an imagination yeah there you so, go yeah so I'm hoping by the end of it I'll, uh, I'll have made peace with that side of my brain or made your fake gravity machine this yes. could be the moment yeah there we go um the young adult thing I find really interesting because I read a, a book I think it was by Meg Roscoff called Just in Case who was uh, that was marketed as young adult is that as in the person who wrote how we live now yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah yeah and i think how we live now was also marketed as young adult oh, yeah, i'm not sure it was a great book wonderful. it's an absolutely fantastic book really page turning not patronizing it's just that it could be read by anyone from the ages of about 12 to, to 90 or 100 sorry centenarians there <laughs> but yeah I, it was a great book i this young adult thing i'm not sure that i buy it no, I think it's a marketing thing. And I think, I mean, someone that I bang on about as much as possible, we did a book shambles with a while ago, is Yana Teller, who wrote a brilliant book called War, which she rewrites for every country that it is published in, which is what would happen if your country collapsed and you became a refugee. Yeah. Brilliantly done, very short book. But she wrote another one called Nothing, which is an incredible novel about 
ethics and values and how what we value and when that falls apart what happens and it's a really and and I at no point did I <laughs> of course I'm an adult you know I, I just yeah. I was engrossed in it as a story and which makes me feel that maybe this line we draw between children and adults is actually pretty much a concept anyway because you know a four-year-old is really good at lying and to do that they have to have a concept of your reality, a concept of the reality, and the fake reality they're going to make. Now, isn't that quite an adult thing to do? Mm. I'm, I mean, obviously, they need looking after because they're not mature yet. But I do think we differentiate between children and adults so much, so much so that when I became a supposed adult, I was waiting for something to really mm. switch in me and go, so now I'm a grown-up, and I'm still waiting I'm exactly the same. I really thought that. I thought there would be a time where there was a physical... I mean, not as in the physical change as in... I mean, literally, a structural change in how I perceive the world. And I think the same now that we see also there's a... a, We're beginning to get a better understanding of, you know... You used to think someone eventually gets an old person's mind. Hello, I'm old now. I'm mainly here to remember things. You know, and that yeah. kind of... And I'd like these kind of sweets and I wear a house coat. And then, of course, you realise there's no transfer to... You know, I'm sure we all know lots of people who are old and who they're, they're railing against the fact that they can't... The brain is still active, the excitement yeah. about the world, their interaction with computers and all of those yeah. things. Everything like that still works. It's merely the fragility... Of, yeah, of, of the, the, the organs is, do yeah. tend to crack up a bit. That was, uh, what's it, I'm not, uh, was it uh, Dorothea Tanning? That's a fantastic exhibition, by the way. Quick, oh, yeah. uh, if, if oh, no, right. uh, the Tate Modern exhibition of Dorothea Tanning I thought was brilliant. And uh, in, she was interviewed when she was 100 years old and she said, above the neck... I am still a young, you know, I still have yeah. a young and vibrant mind. Everything below the neck, 100 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good exhibition. Yeah, I'm, I want to go and see that, yeah. I did a I did a BBC Four program about surrealism, uh, and I was very sad that we uh, couldn't include her. But she's fantastic. Yeah, it was, it's a really lovely. I highly that that, and I liked it more than Pierre Bonnard exhibition, which I think should just be called "Will You Let Me Wash My Genitals in Peace, Pierre?" Because it's just loads of just oh, let her wash for a while. Yeah, let her wash her stop, bottom and stop just it leave it. With your it. dotty pattern mm. surface. Yeah. So surface. go and see Dorothea Tanning yeah. more than below that. the surface. Bonnard, surface, tanning, below the surface. Really interesting development in her later stuff. She had this lovely bit where she uh, she says, because she started to do stuff, instead of painting, she started just to sew things. So she like sew a whole room called Bedroom Number 22, I think it is. Yeah. And it's fantastic. It's got things coming out of the wall. And she said, basically, I got bored of the smell of turpentine. So I thought, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the sewing machine out and I'm going to create these sculptures. For It's brilliant. Sorry, but, you have one but, more book. Oh, yes, that's Oh, true. yeah, OK. Uh, I don't know if we have time for this one because I feel like it. there's a lot but of is that, stuff Why don't you want to talk it? about that one? Oh, just because it would take a long time and uh-huh, I'm, I'm aware uh-huh. that studio time takes time. All right, I have in front of me uh, Drago on Mountains We Stand. It was sent to me in the post. Uh, mysteriously, I have no idea who sent it to me. It is... Links to an incredible podcast made by ABC in Australia called Finding Drago. And essentially the premise of that podcast is there's these two Aussie guys who are mates. They used to have a podcast about movies years ago. One of the episodes was about Rocky IV. Um, during their research into Rocky IV, 
they saw that there was a brief line in Wikipedia, I don't know if it's still there, um, that uh, Ivan Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren's uh, character, ended up having um, more of a storyline in the seminal piece of literature, Drago, On Mountains We Stand. And then one of the guys from this podcast just sort of went, what what piece of literature? What There's a novel about this character in the fourth Rocky film? And so he wanted to do more about that, but, you know, time and, and money was an issue and they, they couldn't look into it as much as they wanted to. Cut to recently, they approached the ABC and they said, uh, we want to find out more about this book. So they got the book and uh, and it's by an author called Todd Noy. And, um, and I'll just uh, read the back of the book, which says, uh, Drago, on mountains we stand, my redemption, my vengeance. In his most celebrated novel since the Alabaster Wars, Todd Noy follows one of boxing's most dangerous and most important fighters, Ivan Drago. Rising from the ashes in Moscow, a broken warrior goes in search of atonement, in search of retribution, and in search of a better self. A story that has captured the hearts and minds of sports fans throughout the world, fill every bow and unearth the answer to the all-important question, what happened to Ivan Drago? But the most interesting part is his uh, about the author section at the back. Todd Noy was a Pulitzer Prize-winning sports journalist and novelist from Perth, Western Australia. He's written for VFL Weekly, The Guardian and KO Magazine. His novels include Oka Dyke in 1976, House of Hugo, 1980, The Alabaster Wars, 1981 and Drago, 1989. He was awarded an honorary degree from the University of New Delhi in 1984. Noy disappeared in January 1992 after a long battle with alcohol and drug addictions. Presumed dead, a memorial service was held in his honour in Perth in December 1995. He is survived by his two sons, Marlon and Quince, and long-term partner, English cellist Elizabeth Harrington. I will say this is a new book, and it has been signed by the author. Oh. This is now, there's a lovely book, you probably know it, uh, Their Brilliant Careers which we mentioned a few times before. Uh, Alan Moore talked about it when we did the show from from the, the little room in the Albert Hall, um, which is a wonderful collection of uh, biographies, short biographies of Australian authors who are entirely fictional, but it is so beautifully done. <laughs> wow. And I wonder now, is this a market that's increasing? Um, mm. Thank you so much for, for coming along, uh, Beck. Beck is, you can follow her on Twitter, at Beck Hill Comedian. Um, uh, we'll be doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and hopefully the Soho Theatre after that. You normally end up at the Soho Theatre, so yes. keep, keep an eye on that. Uh, Philippa's uh, book is fantastic. It's really uh, the book you wish your parents had read and your children would be glad that you did. And I really don't think you need to have a child either. I think that the, the journey inside our minds and even just to understand your own mind whether you have a child or not it's, it's a really um as i said before it's kind of it it, 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 it it's kind and it's useful and, it, and it's wonderful uh my book uh, i'm a joke and so are you which includes appearances from uh philippa perry is uh, currently available in paperback worth buying for that alone i think yeah just for that that <laughs> yeah definitely. no it's a lovely book your book wow. i like it a lot because i love any book that has a child's voice in it, and and you do, in there. It was it's for a little a bit strange thing, isn't it? Writing these things and then finding out where they've taken you, and yeah, yeah. Thanks very much for listening. Cosmicshambles.com is where you'll find all the stuff. Give us money if you have spare. <laughs> 
Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your support at CosmicShambles.com and Patreon.com slash BookShambles. Make sure you go and check out all the live events and everything we've got going on there. Get yourself a copy of Philippa's book. It is out now online in all good bookshops. Beck's show at the Edinburgh Fringe is already selling fast, so make sure you get in early and get tickets for that. And Josie is on tour. That's part of the reason uh, she's not been in studio of late with the Lefty Scum tour with the likes of Johnny and the Baptists and Grace Petrie and Angela Barnes. Uh, Check out her Twitter or her website for dates for those. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, have a great week. Enjoy yourself. Look after each other. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.